We'll go ahead and get started with the book of Judges today. Um, about five years ago, there, was, there were a ton of articles published, and I remember this well, uh, seeing almost every day this, this great archaeological find that was supposed to disprove the Old Testament. And this is, this is a clip from one of those articles. It, it reads like this. According to the tales of the Hebrew Bible, notice they already cast them as tales, as they're already assuming the proposition that it's false. Nonetheless, God asked the Israelites, he did not ask, God does not ask anything, he commands, but it says, God asked the Israelites to annihilate the Canaanites, a tribe of people who occupied modern-day Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Israel, and Palestine. According to a passage in Deuteronomy, soon after their exodus from Egypt, God ordered the Israelites to destroy Canaan and its people. And then they quote the passage from Deuteronomy. And then we also spent a, a fair bit of time in last week's lesson talking about Joshua's conquest of the land. And we talked about the destruction and the eradication of those people. Nonetheless, DNA evidence tells a quite different story. The Bible reports the destruction of the Canaanite cities and annihilation of the people. If true, the Canaanites could not have directly contributed genetically to present-day populations. However, no archaeological evidence has been found to support the widespread destruction of the Canaanites between the Bronze and Iron Ages. So what they're saying is, uh, the, the Bible says that the Canaanites were completely wiped out. And we've got evidence of their lines traced down to today. Therefore, Bible false. That's, that's the argument. Does anybody detect any problems with that argument? Besides, we just want to say the Bible's true. Yeah. Ray, Rahab was one of the people who escaped. Okay. Rahab and the Gibeonites. True. That's good examples of, of, of places, even in the book of Joshua, that we know that there were... Canaanites that, that persevered. What else? The assumption is God told his people to do something and they did it. Now, you don't have to read the Old Testament super carefully to know that that is not always the case. That God tells his people to do something and therefore they do it. You don't have to have been a Christian or lived in a church community for very long to know that it's not always the case. That God tells his people to do something, and therefore they do it. So what we want to say to our academic friends who have found this genetic evidence that the, the lines of Canaanite peoples widespread still persist to this day, we want to say, keep reading. Because the book of Judges is going to chronicle the reality that God's people were not faithful to his command. That they did not do as they were told. And so... Uh, what I want to say is that these, uh, these, these legitimate archaeological findings, these, legit, these legitimate DNA studies actually do nothing to disprove the Bible, but rather support the narrative as written. They are in direct alignment with the reality that Scripture reveals to us. And so with that said, as a side note, we'll get to the actual point of Judges as we work through the outline. Uh, the, the actual plot of Judges is, is pretty simple. The people respond to God's blessing with sin. The people of God respond to his blessing with sin. God, God's people, uh, God sends, uh, in response to that sin, punishment. 
and the people respond with repentance. Then God's people forget their repentance and slip right back into the same slide. Uh, God delivers them, then they forget their repentance and slip right back into the same pattern. It's said that judges, and you'll see here in the outline, the, the bulk of the book, chapter 3 through 16, is just a repeated cycle over and over and over again. God's people fall into sin, God uh, delivers them when they repent, and then they fall right back into the same sin. Uh, and it's said that Judges is, is, is a cyclical book, and that's true. This pattern goes on over and over and over again. But it's more than, than merely cyclical. It's actually more of a spiral, meaning it comes to a point, meaning it, it gets worse each cycle. And uh, you, can, you can read that for yourselves, but I'll just give, um, well, well, we'll get there in a moment when we get to that section of the book. But it, 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 there's a progressive worsening of the people. It's not exactly the same. It gets, it gets worse every time. It's building to a crescendo. Uh, and the point of the book, which is different than the plot, the plot is, is the storyline. The point is, is, is what that plot is supposed to get across, right? And so, you know, we all know, just for the sake of illustration, using a common children's story that we all know, we all know the basic plot of the three little pigs, right? Pig number one builds his house out of straw. And then what happens? The big bad wolf blows it down. Pig number two builds his house out of sticks. And what happens? <laughs> pig number three builds with bricks. And the big bad wolf can't blow it down. That's the plot. What's the point? Build wisely. That's the so so we I'm just making that illustration. The plot of Judges is that cycle of events. The point is this. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Therefore, what we ought to do is do what's right in God's eyes. That's the point. What happens when we do what's right in our own eyes is this, this progressively worse cycle of evil. The point is, rather, that we are to do what is right in the Lord's eyes. And you'll see behind me... Uh, the basic outline of the book, and I divided it into three sections for simplicity's sake. I can give you a more detailed part of section two to anyone who wants it. I have it here in my notes, but writing it on the board was just going to be too much time. Uh, so you notice here there's actually two prologues. The prologue is the beginning section of the book. This is before you get into this overall cycle. And so what we see in these prologues is, is a summation uh, of history since the time of Joshua up to the beginning of these events. And we see it in two different perspectives. I have here, the first part is from Israel's perspective, and the second part is from God's perspective. But it's the same time of history. Now, how do we know that? Well, will somebody please read for me Judges 1 1? Miss Duncan. Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go out for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? Great. So, so we've got, that's the setting. We're right after the death of Joshua, and Israel's getting ready to decide what's next. Now will somebody please read Judges chapter 2, verses 7 to 9. Yes, Ms. Berenger. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Harris, 
in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Alright, so what we've got here is a recapitulation of the same events, right? Chapter 1, 1, after Joshua died, then all this stuff happened. Chapter 2, beginning in verse uh, 7, I believe it was, has a reset. Joshua dies and then unfolds the events. And so the first round, we're going to get the people of Israel's perspective, which is simply a, a, a bare reporting of the facts. Uh, chapter 1, verse 27 tells us explicitly, as we said earlier, that the people of Israel did not complete the conquest. In fact, if you have an ESV, that's the section heading over that part. Failure to complete the conquest. And it's going to say, uh, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants. Then it's going to go down in Ephraim, did not drive out the Canaanites. And Zebulun, verse 30, did not drive out the inhabitants. And Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. The Amorites uh, pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, and they did not allow them to come into the plain. So we see over and over again all of these tribes not doing what the Lord had commanded them. And they view it as a, a, a failure to positively accomplish what they were told to do. They view it in relatively benign terms. This is just a mere statement of facts. God said do X. We didn't quite get all the way there. Now what's God's interpretation of, of those same events. Well, if we look at verse um, 11, God gives his interpretation. Chapter 2, verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And what else did they do? And they served the Baals. Or as Dr. Phillips would say, the Baals. Which is technically more correct, but nobody says that. The point is that what we view is failure to, to do exactly to the letter of the law, God says, is actually it's worse than that. It's, it's overt evil. And the book of Judges is going to do uh, two things for us. It's going to show us, one, that, that, that there's a grave warning of just how bad things can go. It is often the case in the life of, of the Christian, especially in our country and in our time, that we can say, it's just a little sin. It's just a little outlet. It's just a little bit of watching what I'm not supposed to. Or it's just a little bit of thinking about things that I'm not supposed to think about. It's just a little bit. And Judges is just going to show you that a little bit gets out of control really fast. But Judges is going to offer you one other thing. So that's, that's thing one. It's a cautionary tale about what happens to allow just a little bit. The other thing Judges is going to do for us as we work through these cycles is it's going to reassure us that when God's people call out to him in true repentance, he always hears, and you are never too far gone, and he will deliver you. He will be with you. I love the way Shorter Catechism 87 describes sincere repentance. It's called repentance unto life in the Shorter Catechism. And Shorter Catechism 87 says that repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it and unto God. It's not just a, a fear of consequences. It's not just a, 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 a fear of not getting what you want out of life. It's an actual hatred for the sin itself. And when you turn from it unto God, he will deliver you. And we see that pattern over and over and over again in the book of Judges. Um, 
So that's, that's kind of the prologue setting the stage for us where we are. The, the people of Israel have allowed a little leaven to remain, and it will leaven the whole lump. Um, as we've already said, many will tell you that the, the middle chapters, the bulk of the book, chapters 3 to 17, are an unending cycle of God's people falling into sin, crying for mercy, receiving mercy, and then falling back into sin. As if there's no progression being made. And as I've already said, that's true, except for that last part. There is a progression being made. It does get worse each time. Uh, for example, Gideon is one of the earlier judges. And, and I trust we know the story of Gideon. Many people will talk about uh, laying out their fleece before the Lord, as it were. Where, where, and we know this story where, where God calls Gideon and he says, Well, uh, if you're really calling me, I'll lay out my fleece. And I forget which order it is, but, but one time it's the fleece will be wet, but the ground will be dry. And then, and then he says, well, now you've done that, but if, if, if you're really calling me now, the fleece will be dry, but all the ground will be wet. And God does it both times for him. <coughs> Relatively speaking, that's a pretty benign character flaw to, to doubt the promises of God. It'd be better if he just said, Lord, you called me, I'm going to do it. That would be best. But asking for confirmation relative to what we will see later is, is fairly benign. One of the worst examples in the whole book is Jephthah. Jephthah is a judge that crops up in chapter... Um, he comes up in chapter 10, verse 6, and he'll go through chapter 12, verse 7. But the, the real thing he's remembered for is chapter 11, beginning in verse 30. And I'll, I'll read this for us. This is, um, this is what he's generally remembered for. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever or whoever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. That's a bad vow. For multiple reasons. Not just because we, I, I think we all know what is it that comes to greet him from his house? His daughter. His daughter. And worse than that, his only daughter. And worse than that, his only child. That's not what makes the vow bad. It is bad. That, that, that's bad. But it's bad at the outset because he's trying to barter with God. He's trying to say, if you do X, I will do Y. In other words, I will do this to get your favor. I will do this to get your grace. He's trying to make that kind of a deal with God. Especially for something that God has already promised to give his people, the, the eradication of, of his enemies. Why is he doing this? He's doing what's right in his own eyes. This is the way that man naturally thinks. If I want this person in authority, in power, in control to do something good for me, I must curry their favor by promising to do something for them. I scratch their back, they'll scratch mine. This is the way the world works. That is not the way God works. And what's, what's even worse is, is Jephthah, is, he's a judge. He's a leader of the people of Israel, and he doesn't even know the word of God. 
God nowhere commands a vow like this to be made. And what's more, he, he reveals that, that it does not matter to him who dwells in his house. All that matters to him is success. And so he's willing to trade whatever's in the house for that success. God in no place is pleased by child sacrifices, ever. In fact, we spent a great deal of time in the book of Leviticus and in the book of Numbers going through the holiness code and the purity laws and all of these things. The reason that those are there is because the people of the nations, the people of the other countries do these sorts of things and God will have no part of that tied to his worship. And what's more, Jephthah goes through with it. He doesn't see his daughter come out and, and repent and say, Lord, I can't do this. No, he goes through with it. Verses 34 and 35. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And then verse 40 closes, or excuse me, 39, and he, you know, he gives her two months reprieve. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. Not only was it a bad vow to make, But the law of God actually gives a way out of making bad vows. The book of Leviticus, chapter 5, verses 4 to 6, tells you exactly how to uh, get out of this sort of situation because God knows that his people are going to do dumb things and that it is not a good idea to break a good vow to the Lord. But when you make a bad one that God would not be pleased by you keeping, he gives a way out. Leviticus chapter 5, verse 4. If anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil, this is evil, or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear and it is hidden from him, when he comes to know it, he should have seen his daughter come out and say, that was dumb. But he didn't. When he comes to know it, And he realizes his guilt in any of these. When he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering. In other words, what he should have done, according to the word of God, is repented for his sin of making a stupid vow and offered God a sacrifice, not in exchange for the delivery of the Ammonites into his hands, but to forgive him for his foolish, rash vow. But he didn't know the word of God. And so he was left to do what was right in his own eyes. And it gets worse from there. Samson is another example of this. Samson is one who did many mighty things for God. Samson's the final of the judges in this book. Samuel would also be a judge. And, and by God's power, Samson uh, did mighty things for the Lord. But... He was also given over to sexual temptations and put sexual gratification above all. And this happened to him twice. Once in chapter 14, verses 1 to 3, where he marries a, um, a foreign woman. Uh, 
chapter 14, 1 to 3, one of the Phil, a daughter of the Philistines he marries. And then in chapter 16, it happens again with Delilah, who also betrays him. And yet, and yet, even though Samson falls multiple times in the span of chapters that the Bible gives him, the Bible said he knows that God loves his people. And so he prays at the end of his life, asking, Lord, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. And God grants that prayer. And Samson is listed in the book of Hebrews as an example of faith. Now, this ought to be great encouragement for us because there will be times in your life as you grow older that, that, that you will be uh, tempted by and, and, and God forbid you may even give in to sins that you know are wicked and heinous. And you will wonder, could God possibly forgive this? Yes, he can and he will. And, and you will not be cast out of the people of God so long as you come to him with true heartfelt repentance um and, and i you know i don't have time to get into the final chapters of the book i'll just say that, that they bring things to such a gruesome point that um one of my seminary professors told me that uh when he and his family read the bible through every year his wife always asks to skip the end of the book of judges it is horrific what happens amongst the people of god when they do what is right only in their own eyes. Um, I will just say this in the, in the epilogue. Judges ends like it begins with a double epilogue, but in the reverse order of the prologue. The first epilogue highlights the vertical, that is to say, the divine human problem that's, that's epitomized when, when a Levite uh, engages in idolatry and effort. So, so they've rejected the true God and they're worshiping false gods. But, but what happens is, is you become like what you worship. You become like what you worship. That's why we care so much about how you worship here at Second Press. How you worship affects who you are. And, and the outworking of that, of that idolatry in the first epilogue, the, the apostasy, is, is strife with, with brothers um, the, the book of Judges ends in a civil war amongst the people of Israel over, over the, the violent death of, of one poor woman. In other words, the point is that because of the idolatry, they did what was right in their own eyes, and the result is the full canonization of God's people. They become a, a new Sodom. And, and for those of you that are taking notes, compare uh, the, the account of Sodom and Gomorrah in, in Genesis 19.4-5 with Judges 19.22. The people of Israel, the people of God, are uttering the very same words of those wicked people because they have turned aside and worshipped false gods. So Judges ends in Judges 21.25 on this note. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It ends with the need for a king. The same king that you need. The same king that you have. Yes, there will be a, a partial fulfillment of this in David, the man after God's own heart. But the ultimate king that would satisfy the needs of the people, that would keep them from going astray, is the Lord Jesus. He rules and defends us. And that's not just my interpretation of the book of Judges. That's not just something I'm throwing out there. Hebrews chapter 11, 32 to 12, 2. 
is going to give you that exact same interpretation. It's going to list all of these judges. And it's going to say, surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. All of these people. And it's going to list Jephthah. It's going to list Samson. It's going to list these wicked people. In the hall of faith. Let us lay aside, therefore, every sin that clings so closely and do what? And look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the true king that will keep us in God's will and from doing what is right in our own eyes merely. Well, I wish I had more time uh, to go through the book of Judges, but uh, we, are, we are at the transition time. So let me pray for us. God in heaven, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for its truth, its reliability, that it tells us the truth about the world in which we live. And we thank you, Lord, that it gives us a warning that, but by your own grace, there go we. It is so easy, Father, to slip into uh, sin by just little increments. And, and, and before long, things that we never would have imagined, we could find on our own lips. We could find thoughts in our own mind. We could find deeds done by our own hands that we would think now unimaginable. But Lord, that could be us. And your book of Judges warns us of that. But Lord, we do also thank you for the hope and the encouragement that it gives us that when we, like the prodigal son, recognize the, the filthiness and the odiousness of our sins, the, 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 the wreckage, the shipwreck that we've made of our faith, that when we call to you in repentance and faith, you will, like the father of that great story, see us coming a long way off and you will deck us in righteous robes of Christ your son and you will prepare a feast to celebrate the salvation that you have wrought in our lives. And we pray that you would continue to work that out by the precious blood of the Lamb, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.